Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, Tom here. Before we get started today, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to friend of the show, Raven Forrest Friscalzo, host of the Tiny Vampires podcast. Raven is a real-life science person doing work in the field. And I've come to really appreciate what she does on her podcast. There was a time where I wouldn't have thought that a podcast about uh, insect-borne illnesses would be relevant to my life, but within the last few years, I've had someone very close to me get a serious case of Lyme disease, and now I have to worry about my child playing outside because my county is at high risk of triple E. But as with all things, knowledge is power, and Raven is spreading the knowledge on tiny vampires about blood-sucking insects and their potential dangers and peculiarities. So I'm going to play a brief trailer she's put together for you. And if it sounds like something you're interested in, please make sure you check out the Tiny Vampires podcast. Thanks. Ever wonder common questions? Like, why mosquitoes bite you more than your sister? Why we don't just wipe out mosquitoes altogether? Or how it is that there's a Lyme disease vaccine for dogs, but not for humans? Or maybe you wonder some off-the-wall questions, like how ticks transmit meat allergies, if eating parasitic worms is ever a good idea, or how stomach botflies manage to breathe as they live deep in the bellies of horses. We hear about diseases, science, and blood-sucking insects in the news all the time. Wouldn't it be nice to have a friend who knows all about this stuff and can answer your normal and wild questions? Well, now you do. I'm Raven Forrest Frescalzo, the host of Tiny Vampires. Every episode is a question from a listener. I tell you about how the scientists discovered the answers to that question and describe how all of it applies to your life. Diseases can be scary. Science can be mysterious and blood-sucking insects can be frustrating. So let's go on a journey to uncover these answers together. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is The Life of John Marshall, Episode 29, The Marshall Supremacy. 
Last time, we took a non-narrative detour and dedicated an entire episode to the rivalry of Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall. Today, we're picking up where we left off back in episode 27, near the high watermark of the era of good feelings. The 1819 Supreme Court term was shaping up to be a big deal, and everybody knew it. In December of 1818, Justice Story wrote in anticipation, The next term of the Supreme Court will probably be the most interesting ever known. Several great constitutional questions, the constitutionality of the insolvent laws, of taxing the Bank of the United States, and of the Dartmouth College New Charter, will probably be splendidly argued. Writing in the early 20th century, legal scholar and historian Edward Corwin called it the greatest six weeks in the history of the court. If one believes in golden ages, congratulations, this is it. The podcast has arrived at the golden age of the Marshall Court. In this one term, the Marshall Court would decide three landmark cases, McCullough v. Maryland, the Dartmouth College case, and Sturgis v. Crowninshield and would build upon previously laid foundations to cement the legal framework that would ensure the United States would proceed as a nation under a federal constitution and not devolve into a confederation of sovereign states, which was just what centrifugal forces within American politics endeavored to do with ever-increasing intensity. Though all these cases are critical to American constitutional development, they do not necessarily deal with the same issues and honestly, they're not even the only cases we need to analyze. So, to try to streamline everything we need to talk about, I'm going to break things up. In this episode, I'm going to deal with federal supremacy and focus on McCullough, while bringing in the related cases of Martin v. Hunter's Lassay and Cohen's v. Virginia for context and elaboration. Then, in the next episode, I will discuss commerce and the national economy by going through Sturgis and the Dartmouth case and, of course, Gibbons v. Ogden. Cool? Cool. In discussing federal supremacy, it's important to start with Martins v. Hunter's Lassay, because this case lays important groundwork for understanding the subsequent cases. We actually discussed the predecessor to Hunter's Lassay way back in episode 13, as it concerned James and John Marshall and their purchase of a portion of the Fairfax estate in Virginia's northern neck. The complexity of the litigation of this case is astonishing. I looked back at my episode 13 script for a reference and saw that I dedicated almost three pages of background to the questions involved and saw that I had eventually just thrown up my hands around 1806, figuring additional information wasn't needed at that point and frankly deciding that the rest of it was future Tom's problem. Well, today I reap the whirlwind. Stupid past Tom. To try and briefly summarize, in the 1790s, Virginia had wanted to get its hands on millions of acres of land that was owned by a loyalist living in Britain, and the Marshall brothers were interested in purchasing part of the same. Virginia had relied on anti-British confiscation laws to take parts of the land, when John stepped in to represent the Fairfax estate and his own interests in the land. When we last left the subsequent legal wrangling, the state of Virginia and John Marshall as counsel for Denny Martin, the heir to the Fairfax estate, had come to an agreement wherein Martin would sign over the whole of the Fairfax lands to John's brother, James Marshall, who would in turn convey the larger portion of the estate, known as the unappropriated acreage, to Virginia, 
who then would recognize the Fairfax title to the smaller portion of the estate called Manor Lands, which would then free up Martin to sell that portion of the estate to the Marshalls and some other partners whom they brought in to help finance the sale. This is often referred to as the Compromise of 1796. This was the deal that was supposed to put the question of who owned what within the Fairfax lands to bed, and the fact that it did not is extraordinary, especially when you learn why it continued and who kept pushing things. Most assume it would be David Hunter, the plaintiff named in almost all the litigation. But that's not the case. Hunter had no interests left in the proceedings after 1806. The issue, according to Professor F. Thornton Miller, wasn't about confiscations or escheats, but rents. Apparently, the Compromise of 1796 was silent on the status of unpaid back rents and all other various rents, including quit rents that had once been collected by the Lord Proprietor of Virginia's Northern Neck. John and James Marshall wanted those rents, if they could get them, and, like a kid who wouldn't stop picking at a scab, they continuously found themselves involved in litigation over the matter, and this kept the settlement from calcifying, and it kept the door open to questioning the legitimacy of the compromise. Eventually, through this open door marched Spencer Roan, the senior judge of the Supreme Court of Appeals in Virginia, who hated John Marshall. Roan was the son-in-law of Patrick Henry, and one of the leaders of an anti-federalist revivalist group who dominated the state Republican Party in Virginia, provocatively referred to as the Junto. He was determined to fight against the elements of nationalism, driving the era of good feelings. In Miller's words, Roan's antagonism of Marshall was personal, political, legal, constitutional, and ideological. Not fully trusting the state courts, and not wanting to base his case solely on the Compromise of 1796, Marshall sought to place his claims on firmer footing under federal treaties. State versus federal jurisdiction questions like these were at the nub of the Supreme Court's 1813 Fairfax Devicey versus Hunter's Lessay decision. In this case, as was his custom, Marshall recused himself from any business coming before him as a judge, which had to do with the former Fairfax lands. In John's absence, Justice Story wrote for the majority. The court reversed a Virginia Court of Appeals decision that had gone against Marshall, ruling that the Jay Treaty with Britain nullified the state's confiscation statutes. The decision snowed Virginia's confiscation laws under an assertion of federal prerogatives, and a writ of mandamus was issued to the Virginia court, ordering it to reverse itself. Now something happened that, with the benefit of hindsight, seems quixotic, but really makes a kind of sense occurring in the context of the world as it was. Roan and his anti-federalist allies on Virginia's high court ignored the Supreme Court's order, and just like that, we have a full-blown existential constitutional crisis. In fact, not only did Roan's court refuse to implement the Supreme Court's order, but they reheard the case and in December of 1815 took it a step further by unanimously declaring that the appellate power of the United States Supreme Court did not extend to them, the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of Virginia, because they found Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 that had given the Supreme Court appellate jurisdiction over state Supreme Courts in certain instances, was unconstitutional. 
They then concluded that the proceedings in the Supreme Court in Fairfax's Devicey v. Hunter's Lessay was therefore outside of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. So to lay that all out more concisely, the highest court in Virginia is defying the Supreme Court of the United States by itself claiming the power to overturn the law that was duly enacted by the United States Congress, which gave the Supreme Court the power to overturn a state court's decision. Let that sink in for a minute. Is something like that really workable? What kind of order would that sort of system produce? Maybe it's appealing to you, but my mind went to a rather similar place as Gene Edward Smith's, who wrote, It doesn't take a great dystopian science fiction writer to imagine what the legal landscape of such a world would look like. In a United States where the Supreme Court had no unifying role to play, the individual state Supreme Courts would be the final arbiters of treaties and constitutional interpretation, and would inevitably issue variable and likely contradictory decisions, which there'd be no mechanism for nor motivation to reconcile. As a result, foreign powers wouldn't be able to trust the treaties they executed with the federal government would be enforced. Individuals couldn't be sure their individual liberties meant the same thing in one state as it did another. The very meaning of the Constitution would potentially be widely different from state to state. It's hard to believe anything worthy of the title of a nation could exist under such a reality. It would have been a reversion to the chaotic failure of the Articles of Confederation. Remember now, the Virginia Court of Appeals met in Richmond, so John Marshall, relaxing at home, would have been made aware of what had transpired very quickly. In fact, the very same day as Rowan's ruling came down, John wrote out a petition for a writ of error, asserting that the Virginia judge's holding was mistaken and called for the Supreme Court to promptly place the matter on the docket for the 1816 term. Not to spoil things, but Smith refers to the decision the court is about to render as the keystone in the arch of the Supreme Court's appellate authority. When the case returned to the court in March of 1816, it was now designated as Martin v. Hunter's Lessay. Marshall again recused himself, and after three days of argument, Justice Story again delivered the majority opinion. To get right down to it, because I'm technically still setting the table for the actual episode here, he again reversed the Virginia court. Story tackled the question of whether Article 25 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 was constitutional head-on, and unlike Roan, Story concluded that the Constitution of the United States was established not by the states, but by the people of the United States. He said it's the people who are sovereign, not the states, and it was the people, in order to erect an effective national government, who had adopted a constitution that intentionally subordinated a portion of each state's sovereignty to that national government, and the court's appellate jurisdiction was but one example of that. To avoid further confrontation, the court did not turn the case back over to the Virginia court, but rather turned its judgment over to James Marshall. It could do this because no further legal steps were required, luckily, because the effect of the decision was to confirm the possession of those who already held the land. Besides having a clear material stake in the outcome of Martin v. Hunter's Lassay, Marshall also had a substantial philosophical one. Story's decision in this case provides a glimpse of the themes the court would return to 
broaden, and refine in the running fight between the forces of nationalism and states' rights. I think it would be a mistake of hindsight to pretend that the road toward federal law providing the basis for a unified nation was a primrose path. For instance, in a different passage, Gene Edward Smith alternatively refers to Spencer Rowan's showdown with Joseph Story as Virginia's Hartford Convention, and I think that's dramatically understating the potential threat the anti-federalist states' rights movement posed to American nationalism, even at the height of the era of good feelings. Roan wasn't acting as a lone wolf. The other members of the Virginia court helped him defy the Supreme Court's writ of mandamus in Fairfax Devicee v. Hunter's Lassay. A still popular Thomas Jefferson gave the court his public endorsement from retirement. The Virginia legislature passed resolutions in support as well. This was the leading edge of a potent movement John Marshall would be fighting against for the rest of his career, and by the age of Jackson, it arguably had gained the upper hand. As Miller writes, the Marshall Court's nationalist opinions were viewed by the state's rights group as being part of the era of good feelings. Roan and other Virginians who shared what can be called the agrarian or country Republican perspective found most aspects of the era disturbing. The Marshall Court opinions were joined with the nationalistic mood, the talk of banks, and a national system of roads and canals. Leaders such as Roan were afraid that prosperous times after the War of 1812 would lull their fellow Virginians into complacency. During the era of good feelings, William Branch Giles stated that a malignant star had shone above the United States. He called on Virginians to maintain their political virtues and principles, and to resist the exchange of all that was good, stable, valuable, and venerable. The Panic of 1819 was viewed as confirming these warnings. And yeah, now we need to talk about the Panic of 1819, because the Second Bank of the United States, which I'm just going to call the bus mostly from now on, was popularly perceived to be at fault for the Panic, and was also deeply involved in McCullough vs. Maryland, which made that case the main event on the court's 1819 fight card. So the Panic of 1819 was actually the first major peacetime financial crisis in the history of the United States. And while I'm not an economist, I've lived through the recession of the early 1990s and also the Great Recession of 2007, so I've gotten enough buzzwords seared into my brain to make a brief description of what happened in 1819 possible, as it shares depressingly similar features commonly seen throughout American capitalism's boom and bust cycle. Following the War of 1812, peace brought economic expansion, but surprise, Perpetual economic growth is a fairy tale, and the economy began overheating. When commodity prices fell sharply in 1818, the bus found itself short on cash reserves and abruptly called in its loans, forcing many businesses and state banks into insolvency. To try and forestall this, state chartered banks began foreclosing on heavily mortgaged farms and businesses, and people lost their homes and farms. At the same time, adjustments in world markets following the end of the Napoleonic Wars brought an influx of large quantities of foreign goods into the United States, causing a slump in domestic markets. This resulted in falling prices, which impaired agriculture and manufacturing, triggering widespread unemployment. More banks failed. More depositors were wiped out. You know, come to think of it, economic panics remind me a lot of the phenomenon of the Cascade, 
as described by Dr. Prax Meng in Caliban's War, Book 2 of the Expanse. One thing goes wrong. There's only a few compensatory pathways that can step in. They get overstressed, fall out of balance. When the next one fails, there are even fewer paths, and then they're more stressed. It's a simple complex system. That's the technical name for it. Because it's simple, it's prone to cascades. And because it's complex, you can't predict what's going to fail. Or how. It's computationally impossible. Man, the Expanse is awesome. Anyway, needless to say, in these, as in all hard times, banks and bankers were extraordinarily unpopular. And this unpopularity may have given the state of Maryland the brass it needed to go after the bus. The McCulloch case specifically involves the authority of the state of Maryland to lay a tax on a branch of the Bank of the United States located in that state. At its roots, it's about the relationship between the federal government and the states, and because of that, after Marbury v. Madison, it may be the most important case in the history of the Supreme Court. As Albert Beveridge wrote, if Marshall's fame rested solely on this one effort, it would be secure. The facts of the case were as follows. In 1818, the Maryland General Assembly approved a $15,000 annual tax on any bank operating in Maryland that was not granted a charter by the state. And let me check my notes. The list of banks operating in Maryland fitting that description were the Bank of the United States and... Nope, that's it. Just the Bank of the United States. So James William McCullough, the head of the Baltimore branch of the bus refused to pay the tax. The suit was initially filed as a debt action by a fellow named John James, who was trying to collect the fine McCullough's refusal had incurred under the statute. When it was heard by the Maryland Court of Appeals, the state of Maryland took an old-school Jeffersonian strict constructionist position. In fact, their position was nearly identical to the one Jefferson had put in a memo to Washington when the president solicited his opinion on the original Bank of the United States, which, to summarize, said that without a specific constitutional authorization for the federal government to create a bank, any such bank it created was unconstitutional. Not surprisingly, this argument won in the state courts of Maryland, but the case was then appealed to the Supreme Court. Maryland's legal team was anchored by Luther Martin, who at 75 was making his last appearance before the court, and it was rounded off by Joseph Hopkinson and Walter Jones. Rising star Daniel Webster, Attorney General of the United States William Wirt, and famous trial attorney William Pickney spoke for the bank. Oral arguments in the bank case, as it was called, began on February 22, 1819, and lasted nine days. And I really can't express how fascinating it is that the arguments each side employed had evolved so little since Jefferson and Hamilton had first given them voice a generation earlier. Reading through it is almost surreal, but then again, we have contemporary issues today that seem to come before the court almost annually, without any substantively new arguments since the 1970s. So maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Advocates for Maryland stressed that the U.S. Constitution did not expressly give Congress the power to charter a national bank, while counsel for the federal government countered by noting Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18 of the Constitution granted Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. 
Maryland's lawyers believe the necessary and proper clause was limited to those few things indispensable for carrying out the federal government's enumerated powers. Webster and Wirt argued that there were broad, implied powers, which allowed the necessary and proper clause to authorize the incorporation of a national bank by Congress. Hopkinson mocked the doctrine of implied rights, calling the bank a creature of construction that claimed by one implication the right to enter the territory of a state without its consent, and by another implication claimed to be exempt from the state's tax laws. He called it the famous fig tree of India, whose branches shoot from the trunk to a considerable distance, then drop to the earth, where they take root and become trees from which also other branches shoot, until gradually a vast surface is covered and everything perishes in the spreading shade which I must say is really a good rhetorical use of metaphor. Maryland's lawyers defended their state's right to tax any institution, including a branch of the National Bank, located within its borders as a right of sovereignty, while the bank's lawyers held this to be an illegal state government action in which defied Article Six of the Constitution, which stated, This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Which, you have to admit, is pretty on the nose here and not exactly subtle. William Pickney made the closing argument, and I'll just let Joseph's story take it from here. Mr. Pinckney rose on Monday to conclude the argument. He spoke all that day, and yesterday, and will probably conclude today. I never in my whole life heard a greater speech. It was worth a journey from Salem to hear it. His elocution was excessively vehement, but his eloquence was overwhelming. His language, his style, his figures, his argument were most brilliant and sparkling. He spoke like a great statesman and patriot and a sound constitutional lawyer. All the cobwebs of sophistryship and metaphysics about state rights and state sovereignty he brushed away with a mighty basalm. With that it was over. Three days later the court returned with a unanimous decision. This one had been written by Marshall, and of course he delivered the opinion, some of which I discussed in the previous episode, and I hope you'll forgive me if I repeat myself some, considering Corwin singles this effort out as one of Marshall's finest. Corwin says, As is invariably the case with Marshall, his condescension made for greater clarity. In his opinion, he also gives evidence, in their highest form, of his other notable qualities as a judicial stylist, his tiger instinct for the jugular vein, his rigorous pursuit of logical consequences, his power of stating a case, his scorn of the qualifying buts, ifs, and those, the pith and balance of his phrasing, the developing momentum of his argument, and above all, his audacious use of orbiter dictum. Marshall's opinion began by acknowledging the solemnity of the moment. The Constitution of our country in its most interesting and vital parts, is to be considered the conflicting powers of the government of the Union and its members as marked in that Constitution are to be discussed, and an opinion given, 
which may essentially influence the great operations of the government. No tribunal can approach such a question without a deep sense of importance and of the awful responsibility involved in its decision. The first question to be considered was simple. Does Congress have the power to incorporate a bank? Marshall adroitly noted that when the first Congress enacted the original National Bank, they had not been tricked into doing so, and the constitutionality of the bank had not been challenged from 1791 to 1811 when the original charter expired. He noted, In discussing this question, the Council for the State of Maryland has deemed it of some importance in the construction of the Constitution to consider that instrument not as emanating from the people, but as the act of sovereign and independent states. The powers of the general government, it has been said, are delegated by the states, who alone are truly sovereign, and must be exercised in subordination to the states, who alone possess supreme dominion. But Marshall said it would be difficult to sustain this proposition. The convention that framed the Constitution, he said, was indeed elected by state legislatures, but the instrument, when it came from their hands, was a mere proposal without obligation, and it was submitted by Congress to the people, who assembled by convention in their various states. But it doesn't seem clear to Marshall why that should be irrelevant, because as he asks, where else should they have assembled? And he clarifies this point, saying, when the people act, they act in their states, but the measures they adopt do not, on that account, cease to be the measures of the people themselves, or become the measure of the state governments. Marshall's conclusion, therefore, was that the government of the Union is emphatically and truly a government of the people. In form and substance it emanates from them. Its powers are granted by them and are to be exercised directly on them and for their benefit. So having dismissed that portion of Maryland's argument, Marshall turned to enumerated powers. He said, This government is acknowledged by all to be one of enumerated powers. The principle that it can exercise only the powers granted to it is now universally admitted, but the question respecting the extent of the powers actually granted is perpetually arising and will probably continue to arise as long as our system shall exist. Although among the enumerated powers of government we do not find the word bank or incorporation, we find the great powers to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, and to raise and support armies and navies. The sword and the purse, all the external relations, and no inconsiderable portion of the industry of the nation are entrusted to its government. It may with great reason be contended that a government entrusted with such ample powers, on the due execution of which the happiness and prosperity of the nation so vitally depends, must also be entrusted with ample means for their execution. We admit, as all must admit, that the powers of the government are limited, and that its limits are not to be transcended, but we think the sound construction of the Constitution must allow to the national legislature that discretion, with respect to the means by which the powers it confers are to be carried into execution, which will enable that body to perform the high duties assigned to it in a manner most beneficial to the people. Let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution, and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited but consist within the letter and spirit of the Constitution, are constitutional. 
now having established the act to incorporate the bus, was valid, and that it was therefore part of the supreme law of the land, and it clearly had the right to establish a branch in Maryland. The question now became whether the state of Maryland may, without violating the Constitution, tax that branch. Here follows the core of Marshall's reasoning. This great principle is that the Constitution and the laws made in pursuance thereof are supreme, that they control the Constitution and laws of the respective states, and cannot be controlled by them. From this, which may be almost termed an axiom, other propositions are deduced as corollaries, on the truth or error of which, and on their application to this case, the cause has been supposed to depend. These are, first, that a power to create implies the power to preserve. Second, that a power to destroy, if wielded by a different hand, is hostile to and incompatible with these powers to create and to preserve. Third, that where this repugnancy exists, the authority which is supreme must control, not yield to that over which it is supreme. If the states may tax one instrument employed by the government in the execution of its powers, they may tax any and every other instrument. They may tax the mail. They may tax the mint. They may tax patent rights. They may tax the papers of the custom house. They may tax judicial process. They may tax all the means employed by the government to an excess which would defeat all the ends of government. This was not intended by the American people. They did not design to make the government dependent on the states. The court has bestowed on this subject its most deliberate consideration. The result is a conviction that the states have no power, by taxation or otherwise, to retard, impede, burden, or in any manner control the operations of the constitutional laws enacted by Congress to carry into execution the powers vested in the general government. This is, we think, the unavoidable consequence of that supremacy which the Constitution has declared. Finally, Marshall concluded, We are unanimously of the opinion that the law of Maryland imposing a tax on the Bank of the United States is unconstitutional and void. Needless to say, reaction to the McCullough decision was mixed. The Northeast mostly praised it. The West was split. The executive branch of the federal government was sanguine about it. The South, bless their hearts, was not. One Mississippi newspaper lamented, The last vestige of the sovereignty and independence of the individual states composing the National Confederacy is obliterated at one fell sweep. The reaction in Virginia, led by the Junto, however, must have been particularly stinging for Marshall. As Smith writes, These men were Marshall's neighbors. Thomas Ritchie, editor of the Richmond Inquirer, the state's most influential newspaper. Judge Spencer Roan, the most outspoken defender of state rights on the courts of appeals, and William Brockenbrow, a judge of the Virginia General Court who was Roan's first cousin. Ritchie lived one block away, Brockenbrow too, and Roan's substantial property abutted marshals on the east. They moved in the same social circles as the Chief Justice. Their children had been playmates, and they had known one another for at least thirty years. The Junto used their mouthpiece, the Richmond Inquirer, to call for resistance to what it framed as a federal usurpation, declaring that Marshall's ruling must be controverted and exposed. 
It wasn't so much that there was widespread disagreement about the outcome of the McCullough decision as there was objection to the unabashed nationalist orbita dicta that ran throughout the opinion. As Marshall complained in a letter to Bushrod Washington, they required an obsequious, silent opinion without reasons. Beginning on March 30, 1819, Judge Brockenbrough published an essay in the Inquirer critical of the McCullough holding under the pseudonym Amphictyon. A second one soon followed, and then for the first time in his judicial career, Marshall picked up his pen in order to take part in a public debate, sort of. In the grand tradition of political essay writing, he chose a nom de plume, in this case, a friend of the Union, and he dashed off two essays of his own, sending them to the editors of the Philadelphia Union at the end of April. It didn't go well. For some reason beyond John's understanding, the editor of the paper, in Marshall's words, cut out the middle of the first number to be inserted into the middle of the second, and to show his perfect impartiality, he has cut out the middle of the second number to be inserted in the first. Whatever exactly that means, the end result was that, as published, Marshall's argument was mangled to the point of ineffectiveness. Then, that June, two more essays appeared in the Inquirer, lambasting Marshall, the Supreme Court, and the McCullough decision. These were published under the name Hampton, but the author's true identity was Spencer Roan. Rather than be dissuaded by the previous debacle with the Philadelphia Union, as Marshall was sure nobody else was going to step up and defend the court in the press, and thinking the matter too important to cede the field to the junta, Marshall gave it another shot. Between June 30th and July 15th, he unleashed nine essays written under the name A Friend of the Constitution, which appeared this time in the Alexandria Gazette. But Marshall was also writing for a targeted constituency. As he himself noted, the Amphictyon and Hampton essays were designed for the country and have considerable influence there. If this populist energy was to bear any fruit at all, it would do so in the following legislative session, and strategically Marshall wished his refutation to be in the hands of some respectable members of the legislature, so it may prevent some act by the assembly both silly and wicked. And like clockwork, anti-McCullough resolutions appeared in the lower house of the legislature the following session, perhaps in part due to Marshall's essays, or perhaps because the passage of time had cooled some hearts. These efforts all stalled there and came to naught. But state rights champions would soon have fresh indignations they could rent their clothes and pull their hair over, such as the 1821 Cohen's vs. Virginia decision. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm just going to talk about Cohen's briefly here because it pulls in aspects of the other cases we've discussed in this episode and really cements them together, which makes it a landmark case for federal supremacy and constitutional law in its own right. The origin of Cohen's begins in 1812, when the Congress passed a bill to establish a lottery in order to raise money for Washington, D.C., Problems arose when the Commonwealth of Virginia attempted to insulate its own state lottery from outside competition and passed a law to prohibit the sale of out-of-state lottery tickets there. Philip and Mendez Cohen were brothers who worked for a company that happened to be the leading vendor of lottery tickets in the United States and had offices in New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and Norfolk, Virginia, where they happened to be the office managers. On June 1, 1820, Philip and Mendez Cohen were charged by Virginia authorities for illegally selling tickets for the National Lottery in Norfolk. Each of the brothers were convicted in local court and fined $100. The Cohen boys' appeals eventually reached the Supreme Court, where they argued that their conduct was protected by the act of Congress that had authorized the Washington, D.C. lottery. The state courts of Virginia tried a more nuanced approach to denying the Supreme Court's jurisdiction than they had tried before. Instead of declaring a federal law unconstitutional, like they had in Hunter's Lassay, Virginia tried to claim that its interpretation of federal law was unreviewable by federal courts because the Constitution did not give the Supreme Court appellate jurisdiction over criminal judgments by state courts, nor did it allow the court appellate jurisdiction over cases in which the state is a party. So I think, you think, you know where this is going. You think the Supreme Court is about to drop another unanimous decision on Virginia's head like a ton of bricks. You think Marshall wrote this intellectually rigorous opinion that progressed through its logical framework like a triumphal procession. I can hear you say, he probably cited Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, which states that the Supreme Court shall have jurisdiction in all cases, in law and equity, arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made under their authority. And, you assume, he probably found that the Constitution provided no exceptions to this grant of jurisdiction, for cases arising in the state courts, or for cases in which the state is a party. You'd probably wager that he said something epic like, 
There is certainly nothing in the circumstances under which our Constitution was formed, nothing in the history of the times which would justify the opinion that the confidence reposed in the states was so implicit as to leave in them and their tribunals the power of resisting or defeating, in the form of law, the legitimate measures of the Union. And I bet you can just hear him quoting Alexander Hamilton by calling such a system a hydra in government from which nothing but contradiction and confusion can proceed. And I know you're dead certain that Marshall used the Supremacy Clause in Article Six of the Constitution as the icing on the cake when he swept away the Virginia court's ruling. Well, if that's what you thought was going to happen, you were pretty much right. All of that happened except the part where he overturned the Virginia court's decision. That's right. Reaching back into his tool bag, Marshall pulled a move similar to the one he'd used all those years ago in Marbury v. Madison. John used Orbita Dicta to erase Virginia's states' rights rationale for their holding and replaced it with broad assertions of federal power in order to establish the manner in which the Supreme Court had jurisdiction and absolutely could have thrown out the Cohen's conviction had it been warranted. Yet, they declined to do so, not because of anything Virginia had argued, but because after reviewing the federal statute in question, the Supreme Court determined the lottery ordinance was only intended to be in effect locally, and as such, provided no protection to individuals selling their tickets outside of Washington, D.C. Therefore, Virginia could fine the Coens. However, the point was definitively driven home that this was so because of the reasons the Marshall Court cited. The affirmation that the state could keep the $200 that it had fined the brothers must have felt like a Pyrrhic victory to the Junto and must have been cold comfort when balanced against the knowledge that by litigating the matter, it had done much more to further the Nationalist cause than it could have imagined. Well, I am spent, so this is where we're going to leave off for today. Next time, we'll delve into additional landmark cases that helped earn John Marshall the moniker of Nation Builder. In the meantime, remember you can follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter, at American underscore bio. The website remains AmericanBiography.webs.com. And if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, the email is AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Patrons, good news. I do have a bonus episode mostly researched. I'm not ready to announce what it's about yet, as I still have to write and record it, which is really the hardest part. But I'm pretty excited about it. So you do have that coming down the pike as a way for me to thank you for your continued support. And if anybody else is interested in receiving that when it's ready, please head over to patreon.com forward slash A-M-B-I-O and sign up today. Okay, I'm done now for real. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.